Welcome to Then and Now, brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy. We are dedicated to studying change in order to make change, linking knowledge of the past to the quest for a better future. Every other week, we interview thought leaders, historians, researchers, and policymakers about what happened then and what that means for us now. Welcome to Then and Now, sponsored by the Luskin Center for History and Policy at UCLA. I'm David Myers. I teach in the UCLA Department of History and direct the Luskin Center. Our goal is to bring the past into conversation with the present, and in doing so, to understand how we got where we are so that we can imagine alternative and better futures. Today, we have three guests on the episode uh, who have just completed a report under the auspices of the Luskin Center that is called A Century of Fighting Traffic Congestion in Los Angeles. They are Martin Wax, who is Distinguished Professor Emeritus of Civil and Environmental Engineering and of City and Regional Planning at the University of California, Berkeley. Uh, Marty also taught at UCLA for 25 years, where he served as Chair of the Department of Urban, Urban Planning. And he is back at UCLA now teaching and researching transportation policy. Next is Peter Chesney, who is a PhD candidate in the UCLA History Department, where he is writing a dissertation called To Live and Drive in LA, Race and Sensations of the Post-War City. And last but not least, Yuhang Guang, who is working on a master's in urban and regional planning with a concentration on transportation policy at UCLA. Welcome, Marty, Peter, and Yuhang. Thank you. So in the report, you begin by challenging the myth of LA's car culture, the belief that the city not only used, but idolized the almighty car. Marty, do you mean to tell us that this isn't true? Well, if you look across the United States, what you see is that the people who are most dependent upon cars, who use them the most frequently, are people who live in rural areas where, of course, transit isn't available and destinations are far farther apart. Um, but if you compare all American cities uh, to one another, Los Angeles is by no means one of the most automobile-oriented. Uh, people in Los Angeles own about 1.8 cars per household. That's just about equal to Seattle and Cincinnati. We drive about 22.3 miles per capita per day, which is equivalent to Akron, Ohio, or Beaumont, Texas. And I think most of us would conclude that Akron and Beaumont and Seattle and Cincinnati are not places known for auto culture. Um, we use transit uh, just behind New York and Chicago, we're the third largest transit-using city in the United States. So uh, I think that the media, and um, especially movies, and but also the uh, books have portrayed Los Angeles in a particular way, and that gets repeated over and over. But we're not particularly auto-centric. Huh. So uh, maybe you could just go a little bit deeper, and, and uh, this is to any of you, wh why did that myth take hold? What, what was it about Los Angeles that seemed to be the site for this myth of the almighty car. Um, okay, so I think that the uh, the myth of Los Angeles being a capital of the car culture um, took hold in part because of history and histories of structures in the region. Um, one 
irony of this, of course, is that the developers and planners who brought Los Angeles into existence in the early 20th century, uh, they didn't necessarily plan it to be a place where people relied on cars. Um, they created this massive physical infrastructure of um, public transit lines, streetcars, that connected the various parts of the city and therefore the city decentralized. Um, and it decentralized in a way that made the city quite different from other cities in the United States, more dense cities, more concentrated cities on the East Coast like New York. Um, so when people in Los Angeles started to settle in this dispersed manner, they had an incentive to buy cars. And so you see a statistical trend in Los Angeles where a, a city that had already, the county at least, had 50,000 cars registered in 1915. By 1925, that number had increased by 10 times. And there were 500,000 cars registered in Los Angeles. Uh, that's a rate of almost one car per person in the region. And that rate is actually comparable to rates in the United States nationally in the later part of the 20th century. Um, but that said, you know, Los Angeles might have been ahead of the curve historically, but in many ways, it's indicative of trends that were going on nationally. Um, the rate of car ownership and car registration in the United States in 1915 was 25 for every thousand people. By 1925, that number had increased by six times to 150 for every thousand people. And by the 1980s, uh, the, the national trend um, had basically caught up with Los Angeles. Okay, so let's um, look at um, the phenomenon that you actually study um, at length in the report, um, traffic. If LA was not an outlier in terms of the uh, proportionate number of cars uh, per population per capita, um, was traffic demonstrably worse here? Because we tend to think of LA as sort of the, the bad traffic capital of the world, just as we have thought of it as uh, the home of the almighty car. You've dispelled the myth that there was a particular infatuation with a car in LA. What about traffic? Um, can you tell us a little bit about the history of LA's traffic problems? When did LA come to be known for its traffic problems? Uh, this is Marty. I, I, I think that most large, dense cities across the world have faced traffic problems that are comparable to those in Los Angeles. The fact that Los Angeles has self-consciously addressed its traffic is not different, but it's of, of, of course import, uniquely important to Los Angeles. And um, it's important for me to note that while Los Angeles began as a dispersed metropolitan area, it, as it developed through the 20th century, it became what is actually the densest metropolitan area in the United States. It is more dense than the New York metropolitan area. But the unique thing about Los Angeles is that it is not centralized the way New York is. So New York is Manhattan surrounded by low density suburbs. Los Angeles is well, not quite Manhattan surrounded by higher density suburbs. So things are separated in space to a far greater extent than New York, even though the regional population density per square mile is actually higher than, uh, than in New York. So in, in Los Angeles, we have struggled between 
should should we centralize and connect everything to downtown by rapid transit while at the very same time that some people favored that people who lived in the San Fernando Valley or in Long Beach said no why should we invest billions in rail rapid transit to make downtown stronger we are a unique city we are we are decentralized and that's a good thing and we should have activity centers in Long Beach and in the San Fernando Valley and uh, and uh, and in other surrounding areas okay so i want to go back to this question about when congestion became a problem because i i, I remember speaking to um, very long-time residents of Los Angeles who once when I made a reference to the eternality of traffic congestion in Los Angeles laughed at me and said, what are you talking about? When we were growing up, there was no such thing. Uh, that may be um, a mythic reconstruction um, that reveals the fragility of memory or not. Um, was traffic from that point in 1925, Peter, when there were half a million cars, uh, a problem? Uh, or did it uh, compound in an exponential form over the years? Uh, it, it appears to have taken new forms with the passage of time. Um, you could argue that the traffic was really terrible in early 20th century, and there were um, issues that made it worse than anything we could possibly imagine today. Uh, I mean, I'd, I'd like to evoke a time in the 1910s when, as a driver, you would have been competing for space in the streets uh, with horse carts. Um, you would have uh, been driving in a city where there was no jaywalking ordinance. So people might have darted out in front of you at any given time. And the streets were much narrower and the streets were much less planned for automobile traffic than they became later on. There also wasn't much of a traffic code that was really enforceable until the mid 1920s. So I'd say it, it was definitely worse, but it was a different kind of problem. And it was the problem of what planners will call multimodality, um, uh, which was a problem that was basically eliminated in the 1920s. But at the same time, while traffic planners dealt with one fire, a new fire started. You could argue that that new fire was just the number of automobiles. It started to grow dramatically from the 1910s into the 1920s. It peaked in 1929. It slowed during the depression in World War II, and then it started to take off again, and, and traffic took a whole new form uh, in, the, in the middle to late 20th century, where all these freeways had been created, and the freeways did speed some of those long trips from one end, end of the city, um, but those freeways also uh, induced a demand, uh, a demand that had existed in the city for free-flowing traffic, um, for life out in low-density suburbs, um, for jobs that were far from where people lived. And so as the freeway network was created, this new form of traffic arose, which is the form of traffic uh, that results from people changing their lifestyle, changing their habits, and um, basically uh, creating a problem that hadn't really existed before because previously it would have been impossible for that traffic problem to exist. Right. Well, it's interesting because as you described in the report, there have been a variety of uh, solutions proposed to the traffic problem, including building new highways and freeways, which, as you've just suggested, became, in a certain sense, a problem um, because it enabled far more volume. So I'd love to go back and just think of some of the solutions that were proposed to the traffic problems of Los Angeles over the course of the 20th century. Yuhong, do you think you could uh, 
give us a sense of some of those solutions? Sure. So as Peter described, uh, we had this, this sense, um, and as we describe in this report, um, LA has this continual sense that uh, traffic congestion is going to, to, to stop its proverbial beating heart. Um, and so across the century, uh, we have in LA descri- uh, attempted many ways of, of resolving uh, what early traffic engineers called the, the, the congestion problem or the traffic problem. Um, and so the first understanding of, of traffic is that, well, there are too many cars competing for too little space. Uh, so what can we do to resolve that problem? Well, we can build more arterial streets, we can widen freeways, we can build more freeways. Um, and as, as Peter describes, um, this uh, routes will, reass- traffic reasserts itself in a way so that um, across different routes, there's an equilibrium of travel times. So um, if we widen a freeway here, people will notice, well, the traffic on this freeway has become more fluid um, and traffic on sort of parallel streets will, will rearrange itself in such a way that uh, on the freeway and on the parallel arterial streets, we have a, a congested uh, state again. Now, it may be flowing slightly faster, but as more people use the route, we return to a congested state. Um, and so building more capacity is often a stated solution, uh, but a century of interventions of building capacity have shown that congestion will reassert itself uh, uh, sooner or later. Uh, We've also tried regulating traffic in various ways. So, uh, for example, turning uh, certain streets, Olympic and Pico, for example, into one-way streets, um, creating sort of anti-gridlock regulation. uh, and, And this has... In, in many ways, the same effect. There's a practical effect of, of loosening a little bit of space on the road. And as traffic becomes more fluid, uh, the same effect happens as if we, we widen streets. So people see that the, the, effect, the traffic has become more fluid, more traffic uh, moves onto the roads, um, and congestion reasserts itself. Um, and, and, and one thing that was also tried was better information about traffic. So telling drivers, well, there's congestion here. And in in more modern incarnations, we have things like Google Maps and Waze where you can view sort of multiple different routes um, and see which one is the least congested. But as drivers fan themselves across the various routes, um, each of them moves to, again, a travel time equilibrium. And as more and more drivers come out because, well, you know, it's going to take less time than I thought it did. So I might as well take that trip. Or, you know, uh, I think I can go a little bit farther and, and, and get that far away store that I like rather than the near grocery store. Um, that traffic increases again, and we, we see congestion reasserts itself. Um, and so it, it comes back to drivers wanting that capacity, uh, drivers seeing that ample capacity, that, that extra capacity, and, and saying, well, my trip has become possible in a time that I, that I think is reasonable. So I'm just going to, I'm going to make that trip uh, and congestion reasserts itself. Uh, even though we we've created all this extra capacity, all this uh, more efficient roadway. Right. I mean, it, it seems in that regard that the proposal often becomes the problem. I mean, Waze is a good example of that. Um, it certainly facilitates uh, 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 in the ease of uh, of of uh, 
finding one's way to uh, places one doesn't know how to get to. Uh, but as uh, residents of uh, certain neighborhoods off of the main uh, thoroughfares know, it creates new forms of congestion. So um, in light of that uh, interesting dynamic, whereby building more capacity, either, either in physical infrastructure or technologically, can in fact um, uh, reassert a new form of, assert a new form of congestion, um, I'm wondering, Marty, what the relationship between um, traffic volume and congestion and public transportation is uh, in Los Angeles. Um, what does the state of affairs in terms of traffic in LA tell us about the state of investment in public transportation in Los Angeles? It's common for critics to say we wouldn't have this terrible traffic if we hadn't um, dismantled the red cars. Um, that's not true because if, if one looks back into history and looks at the red cars, one finds that the populace was angry about the red cars. It, they were inadequate. They were always late. The drivers were drunk. The cars were filthy. And when we remember them now, we remember them nostalgically as a wonderful system but they were quite an inadequate system to those who used them in that time period. The truth is that um, about three, five, seven percent of all of our trips, mostly work-related, are made on public transit, and about 93% of all of our trips are made on highways and streets, and that we can invest much, much more in public transit and we can get more people to ride public transit, but it won't reduce traffic congestion. It's a mistake to think that the New York system, which is so extensive, um, connecting every neighborhood to every other neighborhood, um, has reduced traffic congestion in New York. Just as Yu Hong pointed out that building more highway capacity generates more travel, it would be true that building more transit capacity would generate more travel. What we do when we invest in transit is we provide people with alternatives to driving so that they can choose to take, take a bus or take a train instead of a car. And we hope more and more people will do that. But it doesn't eliminate the possibility that somebody else will say, well, you know, so many people switched to the bus that the roads are less crowded, so I'm gonna go to that store that's farther away or take that job that's farther away and traffic again reasserts itself. Transit is important, but it is not an antidote to congestion. Okay, um, that's really helpful to, to uh, chew over. I wanna uh, turn our focus um, away from the past where we've dwelt for the last uh, uh, 15 minutes or so to um, a discussion of today. Where are we today in terms of traffic policy, uh, the state of congestion? Um, and I suppose this is the opportunity to really reflect on what um, inquiry into a century of uh, traffic policy yielded. Um, would you describe the state of affairs today as emblematic of a policy failure, Marty? Um, well, urban areas are complex social, economic, and political systems. Uh, I would think that many Americans are well-housed, yet Los Angeles has 
what could be called a housing policy failure. Many of us have environmental problems. I wouldn't describe the transportation system as either a success or a failure. I would say it contains many successes and many failures. Uh, there are particular projects, there are particular routes that work very well. There are other places uh, that are pretty awful. The one thing that comes to mind as an important innovation right now, which is being discussed and debated by the LA Metro uh, board and by consultants to LA Metro and by SCAG, the Southern California Association of Governments, which includes six counties, not just Los Angeles, is the possibility of introducing congestion pricing. Um, and that's very controversial. And that is really why we decided to do a history of transportation and congestion in, in Los Angeles. Congestion pricing means changing the price to drive, depending on your location and the time of day, charging more where the roads are most congested and charging less where they are uh, free flowing and charging maybe zero where they're free flowing. And this exists now in 40 major cities around the world. And the surprising thing is that those cities discover that it's actually a more equitable system than the current system because the people who are disadvantaged by the congested system in Los Angeles tend to be lower income and minority citizens. The people who drive the most tend to be rich and have multiple cars in their households and travel a lot more. So the people who would be paying these fees generally are people of means. The people who would be benefiting from the improvements and the expenditure of the uh, revenue that is raised that way tend to be those who use public transit the most, uh, transit dependents, we call them. And, and so congestion pricing has some promise for Los Angeles. And the last thing I'll say in answering your question is that it, in a, quite recently in the city of Stockholm, there was a proposal to, end, to uh, introduce a system of congestion pricing. And it was very controversial, just as this, the proposal is in Los Angeles right now. So the mayor of Stockholm um, brilliantly made a suggestion, let's try it for six or eight months, then let's remove it. And then after three or four additional months, let's have a vote. And the people experienced that over a year and a half and they voted to bring it back and found that it was a superior system. It made transit work better. It made their highways work better. One very important um, person, his, his name is Herbert Levinson, one of the America's leading experts on freeways who passed away a few years ago, when he visited Los Angeles, made the statement that Los Angeles has probably the best road system of any city in the world. We just manage it inefficiently. And the way to manage it more efficiently is to charge prices for its use. So I want to go back to congestion pricing in, a, in, in just a minute, but um, I'm interested in how you would describe the cohesiveness or lack thereof of traffic policy in LA. And, um, I wonder if you have any thoughts about how uh, our traffic policy compares to that of New York City. Both, in both cities, traffic congestion is, is serious. 
traffic congestion is always serious in successful cities. Traffic is not produced in great volumes in Duluth uh, because there isn't the economic and social activity in Duluth that there is in New York or Los Angeles. And New York has uh, delays and it has congestion just as much as Los Angeles. Um, so what I think we learned from, from comparing the two cities is more in their similarities than in their differences. We find that everyone complains about traffic and everyone complains about the solutions that are proposed for traffic. So right now we can conclude from the fact that New York has again postponed its experiment with congestion pricing due to the COVID uh, um, emergency, um, that many of us in both cities think that the solution is maybe worse than the problem. And that means we would rather sit in traffic than pay a fee to avoid it. And as long as there's a strong political consensus that that's the preference, we will have to learn to live with the traffic congestion. Hmm. Okay, I want to ask Peter a question, um, because Peter, you're not only um, an astute student of the past, but always interested in the future and in people in the past who have thought very seriously about the future. So um, over the course of the last century, have there been visionary policymakers or political figures who developed new, innovative, far-reaching solutions uh, that were never realized? Yes, absolutely. Um well, I'd start just by by uh, alluding to Marty's comments about congestion pricing. You know, some variety of congestion pricing has been um, proposed for the last hundred years. I mean, it goes back to um, Peugeot, who was a, a British economist, Frank Knight, who was an economist at the University of Chicago, a Nobel winner, William Vickery, um, just all of these great thinkers. I mean, really impressive, uh, Im impressive uh, thinkers, um, started talking about this solution so early that the, you could say that the, uh, the, the technological capacities to enact their ideas, uh, were not with us yet, right? That, 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 um, society was not advanced enough, arguably, in order to put their ideas into practice. And it really wasn't until the 1970s that it even became remotely possible, hence Singapore being one of the first countries, uh, one of the first cities, really, uh, to enact congestion pricing that early, um, but looking at Los Angeles in particular, I, I want to highlight a couple of uh, a couple of uh, people of this particular place um, who I think are are comparably um, far seeing and prescient, um, and, and definitely deserve our attention, whether their visions were were workable or not. Um, the first that I mentioned is named Clarence Dykstra, who any UCLA student or employee should be able to recognize that name. Um, he became an administrator at UCLA in the 1940s. Um, but as early as the 1920s, Dykstra was already looking ahead into the future and thinking about how to deal with problems like housing and traffic congestion. And what he came up with uh, was the idea that low density uh, development um, would provide a workable solution to the traffic problem in Los Angeles. And, and I'd say that he was both right and wrong. You know, it's 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 urban concentration that makes traffic worse than pretty much anything we can imagine, right? It's it's the reason why there's the kind of uh, traffic congestion you see in Manhattan, 
Um, but of course, Dijkstra wasn't able to recognize in the 1920s that the low density de uh, you know, deconcentration of Los Angeles was going to lead to these longer trips and more car dependency. And so by the 1930s, he's already recognized this kind of failure of imagination. And he's one of the first people to really highlight that Los Angeles could benefit from a, a very extensive network of freeways. And what he recommends, and, and he does this in a private capacity, he's not even a city employee, he's doing this as a, as you could argue, like a community or a public service, is he recommends a freeway network that's twice as extensive as the one that we have today. Um, so, you know, I, I think Dykstra deserves some recognition as being somebody who, who had a vision for the city with freeways that probably would not have have solved traffic congestion, it wouldn't have eliminated or abolished it, but it would have made it a lot less worse for a certain period of time until Los Angeles grew even more extensive and even more populated than it is today. And then the other person who has a similar line of thinking was a man named Calvin Hamilton. Um, and Calvin Hamilton came to Los Angeles, um, you know, trained elsewhere. He was Harvard University trained urban planner. And he comes to Los Angeles and he observed a phenomenon that was going on in Los Angeles. It's somewhat comparable to what Dykstra had called for, which is that deconcentration. Except Cal Hamilton, unlike Dykstra, who, who, who privileged low density, Hamilton thought that the city should be basically half and half, that there should be a number of centers, what, what could be called a polycentric city, with basically small downtowns dispersed throughout the metropolis. Um, and so you can look at a place like Century City or Westwood Village. Those are examples of what Cal Hamilton hoped for, except what didn't end up happening, at least according to his ambitions, was there was not the uh, public transit development to go along with those centers dispersed throughout the city. He wanted low-density suburbia in much of the city, but then these really high-density dense, high um, centers that were connected to one another through transit so that people wouldn't have to depend on cars to get from one to the other. So anyway, I find their visions to be especially interesting and inspiring. Very interesting, thank you. Um, though it seems that um, in a certain sense, at least at the present moment, all roads or as it were freeways uh, are leading to congestion pricing as the, the most uh, viable, uh, beneficial uh, solution, um, which of course would alter what a freeway looks like. Um, uh, I want to turn now to you, Hong, and, and we've heard in bits and pieces about congestion pricing, but I want to hear a little bit more, where has it worked? Um, and what do you think it would look like in Los Angeles? Sure. So what, um, as Marty and Peter have talked about, um, it's been deployed in, in, in quite a few major cities across the world. Um, and I think the earliest example is Singapore, uh, who set up a uh, the earliest were manual gantries with, with traffic officers positioned at each one. Um, and they would see if, if people had on their dashboard stickers that corresponded with the zone that they were trying to enter. And of course, this manual system was expensive. It was difficult. Um, and we have technology today that would make it much easier. Um, but cities that have deployed congestion pricing have seen that it has, in fact, uh, worked to reduce congestion. Uh, particularly um, cities with uh, sort of denser cores, um, which really have a centrality of where their traffic converges. Congestion pricing has been uh, sort of most clearly established, uh, but of course, 
LA looks a little bit different. It's not exactly got a, a, a dense downtown that has you know all of the people converging there. Uh, it has quite a quite a few centers, um, and so there are a few different types of uh, congestion charging. Um, as we heard earlier, there's there's cordon charging, so vehicles pay a fee for crossing a boundary. Um, Traveling within uh, the bounded area, so for example, this would be uh, this central central London um, doesn't incur a fee. Uh, vehicles within a bounded area moving to a different bounded area, so different zones have pricing. Um, so you know, a bridge would separate a zone. Um, crossing a, a well-established route would be moving from zone to zone, uh, and then there's facility pricing. So as I drive down the freeway, uh, a toll is collected. Um, this works really well you know, on bridges and tunnels. So toll bridges, for example, could have variable pricing based on congestion. Um, LA Metro has proposed what they're calling corridor pricing. Um, so for example, on the Sepulveda Pass, uh, there's the I-405 and the Sepulveda Boulevard um, adjacent to it. Um, so the entire corridor would need to be priced somehow. Um, both the cars and perhaps the transit that's traveling across um, would need to have would need to be considered um, as part of an entirety uh, that would need to be priced somehow. Uh, so shifting people out of their cars so that Sepulveda Pass flows more th- freely. If we price four of uh, the four hundred five alone, then people will move on to Sepulveda Boulevard. So it needs to be considered the, the whole sort of route would need to be priced. Um, and so LA Metro is calling that corridor pricing. And just to be sure I understand the argument, uh, congestion pricing is not a regressive form of taxation. It does not burden uh, the economically disadvantaged. Uh, every form of charging for transportation is regressive meaning that lower income people pay a higher proportion of their income in that charge than upper income people. So gasoline taxes are regressive. Fixed tolls that don't change with time of day are are regressive. And we pay mostly for transportation in Los Angeles County through 2% sales taxes that go entirely to transportation. And those are regressive. The way you make a tax less regressive is dependent upon how you spend the money. So if we have congestion pricing and the proceeds of the tolls that people pay are used to improve public transport, um, then obviously since public transport users have much lower incomes than highway users, you mitigate the regressiveness or can actually turn them into a progressive pricing system. In addition, I would argue that if congestion pricing reduces traffic on a major arterial and there are bus service on that arterial and the buses are filled with lower income people um, more than cars are, then the people who would benefit from the congestion pricing by faster speeds on those streets are the people on the buses and they are lower income people. So it's a mistake to presume that the current system, when you look at it from 30,000 feet, is a fair system and adding a charge adds a regressive fee. The current system is very regressive. And in some ways, congestion pricing can actually make the system more progressive. 
Yeah. And uh, you mind if I, I'll just add really quickly that um, we should also remember that a lot of the automobiles on the road or the motor vehicles on the road in Los Angeles are uh, operated by people who are working currently, uh, working for a living, working for a company. And uh, it, it's just, it's interesting for those of us who, who think of, of congestion pricing as being a non-regressive or largely non-regressive compared to the way things are currently a non-regressive option for Los Angeles. It, it seems that a lot of the folks who would who would pipe up and say this looks regressive are are the people who you know want to cut their labor costs and they want to cut their production costs. I'm talking about trucking. You know, I'm talking about delivery. Um, we should just keep in mind that there is there is a strong interest at play and in the works that would suggest that this is going to be harmful to poor people when mostly it's going to be a, an, an added small burden for business enterprise. Okay, um, I'm curious, um, in light of the um, case you make for congestion pricing, where you think we are headed? Um, say, toward 2028, uh, the Olympics in Los Angeles, um, a time that will bring large numbers of people in the city and presumably place new burdens on the, uh, on the uh, transportation infrastructure. Where do you think we will be or where are we headed between now and then in terms of uh, the, the flow of traffic? Los Angeles County Metro has a program they call 28 by 28. They're trying to complete 28 capital investment projects by 2028 so that they'll be in place for the Olympics. New subway lines, um, primarily some express bus lines as well. And um, I think the important point to remember is that with COVID and with declining sales tax revenues, they may well have to cancel some of those projects and postpone them so that they won't all be in place by 2028. Um, but if we look back to the 1984 Olympics, we did pretty well. We did pretty well because the Olympics last only two weeks and people are willing to accept changes in their transportation options in a short period of time that they wouldn't accept over a long period of time or permanently. So for example, during the Olympics in 1984, daytime truck deliveries were rescheduled to be at night. That was only for two weeks. And we could do something like that again. Many workplaces told their employees to telecommute during those two weeks and we could do that again. Um, and we've had the experience of 1984. The transportation system during the Olympics worked about as well as at any time in the last 50 years. So um, the, the Olympics is a, an important event for the city of Los Angeles, but the solution to its long-term uh, congestion problems is a separate question from addressing traffic during a short period of time, like the Olympics, when people are quite willing to adjust, knowing that it's a temporary adjustment. Peter. Yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll add to that. Um, it, it's really a matter of communication and buy-in. I, I mean, I, what, what happened in 1984, just jumping on some of Marty's points, is that these commuters and these business employers that made these decisions um, that, that made it possible for traffic to flow so brilliantly well um, during that event. Um, it was because 
there were just so many interests in Los Angeles that converged and reached a sense of consensus that Los Angeles had to have a successful event, you know, that, that the visitors had to have a good time, that this event was being seen around the world as a reflection of the city and of the United States itself. And of course, the reason why there was so much buy-in was because it got turned into a, uh, you know, kind of an episode, you could argue, or a front in the Cold War based on the fact that the previous Olympics had been in Moscow and the United States had boycotted it. And then the Olympics in Los Angeles uh, was um, boycotted by the East Bloc. Um, I, I would say that for 2028, um, that anybody who's planning for that Olympics needs to be thinking about uh, how to, how to achieve that same kind of buy-in um, in Los Angeles. And, and I would argue that the way that you do that, you know, vis-a-vis traffic, obviously, is through good communications and good planning. Um, but, I, but I think it's actually, it's a bigger issue that, you know, that the traffic will work better if there's generally a really strong sense of buy-in into those Olympics. And, uh, and, you know, what I would say for, for those planners is I would say you just need to make sure that you have a happy populace, you know, that you don't have uh, as homeless a population as you have in Los Angeles, you know, that you get people housed, um, that you have, uh, you know, very little in the way of, of breakdowns of the various orders that there are in Los Angeles, you know, that the police are well behaved in the time leading up to that. And, and once you have all those factors in play, then you can get the kind of buy-in that'll make it so that the traffic will flow well, just like in 84, and, and everything will work out nicely. A relatively modest agenda for public officials uh, to help solve the traffic <laughs> problem. Um, I should say that um, the Laskin Center uh, has been sponsoring a, a year-long report on the history uh, of homelessness, um, and um, in a forthcoming episode of Then and Now, we will um, discuss uh, the conclusions of that research project. Um, by way of conclusion, I want to ask a question of Yuhong and Marty um, about uh, your career choice. Uh, why is it that you have decided to devote yourself to the study of traffic? Is there some metaphor embedded in that uh, choice, as if this is a way to understand your own life journey? Uh, or is it a uh, simple technical matter you're interested in uh, in the engineering and, and logistics features of it. So let's begin with Yu Hong um, at a different uh, station in his career than Marty, and then we'll conclude with Marty. Sure. So I think um, a little bit different from many members of my cohort um, in the uh, MERP program, the Urban and Regional Planning Master's program, uh, is that I was an engineer in undergrad. Um, and one of the uh, Topics that captured my attention um, is that the, was traffic and transportation engineering, um, and I felt like I wanted to do something that was more policy oriented, um, that was more uh, sort of in, that really studied more deeply the implications of these engineering decisions that were being made um, on the people. Um, that they were ultimately affecting. So I ultimately decided to do, do an urban planning program um, rather than continue um, straight through in engineering. Um, and so that's how I ended up where I am. Um, okay. Marty, you have devoted a long and productive career to the study of traffic. Why? 
I'm so glad that you asked that question. Um, when I was a sophomore at the City College of New York, as a civil engineering student, I enrolled in a course called Transportation Engineering. Instructor named Joe Pistrang was about the most dynamic teacher one could imagine. And he had us out in the field counting cars and riding trains with stopwatches. And I became fascinated by it. And he was also an inspirational teacher. So in that class, I decided not only that I wanted to study transportation, but that I wanted to be a college professor. And um, both have been wonderful decisions. I continue at the age of 80 to be interested in traffic and in teaching about transportation. So thank you for the opportunity to say that. Uh, thank you. And uh, please continue to uh, stay doing, do what you continue to do what you do, at least until 2028, at least until the Olympics. And then we'll talk about uh, <laughs> slowing down the pace. Um, I want to thank Marty, Peter, and Yuhong for joining us on Then and Now. It's been a real pleasure to have you with us, and it's been a really illuminating conversation. Thank you as well to our listeners out there, and of course, a special thanks to our executive producer, Maya Ferdman. Until next time, wishing you a good and safe day. Thank you for joining us this week on Then and Now. Then and Now is brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy, where we study change to make change. For more on our work, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at our handle, at Luskin History. Our show is produced by Maya Ferdman and David Myers, with original music by Daniel Reichman. Special thanks to the UCLA History Department for its support, and thanks to you for listening. <laughs>